ocular surface disease. It's complex, chronic, and progressive, but rife with opportunity for the enterprising optometrist. The mission of this podcast is to make this condition more understandable and accessible to those interested in specializing in it. So let's get to the point. The following discussion was recorded prior to the COVID-19 outbreak, which has led to widespread interruption of eye care practices and patient care. Despite the immediate challenges facing optometry, the principles of expanding and optimizing your practice will become even more imperative. Today, we are focusing on point-of-care testing options and how to obtain a CLIA waiver so that you can perform this point-of-care testing in your office. For those of you that aren't familiar with point-of-care testing or don't see the value in this, we're going to cover all of that today. So we're covering why this testing is valuable and how the results of these tests will change your treatment protocol. My name is Jackie Garlick, and I'm an optometrist practicing in Boston, and I am joined by my co-host, Leslie O'Dell in the wonderful state of Pennsylvania. Hello, Leslie. Hello. So should we maybe just jump right into, um, in, in order to perform any point of care testing, we have to have, uh, the office has to have a CLIA waiver, C-L-I-A waiver. Do you want to, should we just start talking about that, how you get that? Sure. So first of all, maybe back up one step and say, what is point of care testing? So that is going to be your um, tear osmolarity test and your um, MMP9 test or Inflamadry. There are other point of care tests that you can do in your office, which would be um, adenodetector, which is very helpful um, when you're trying to rule out something like an EKC type of viral infection as well. So that's kind of what's getting grouped into this point of care testing. And what, what it is, what it's looked at and what this CLIA waiver is are these tests are called CLIA wave tests. And that means that they are simple laboratory procedures and exams that have an insignificant risk with, um, with a erroneous result. So what that means is just, it's giving us a piece of information to better develop a treatment plan for our patients. And so that is what the CLIA waiver means. Um, the best way to find out the most information is through the cms.gov website. Um, so it's cms.gov and search CLIA, and you can figure out what, what you need to be doing to get that waiver. One thing I'll say is also um, the reps for the companies that, um, you know, quite all that makes the Inflamadry and uh, Tear Lab are actually really helpful, I think, in assisting you getting the waiver too. So they probably have information on that that can also help if you're running into any issues with that. So you do, um, do you know about actually, do you know about any time frame on like when you submit this application to when you can get that? Do you know how that works? Yeah, I think it's about a four to six week period of time. And then as far as your renewal process, um, it is per location. So if you're a multiple location, um, you do need to pay for that per location and it's valid for two years. And the fee for the, certif- the certificate of the waiver is $150 per location. So that would be $150 per location per every two years. Um, but I do think it's about a four to six week period of time until you can get that. Okay. I, this is a, for any, um, listeners that are in Massachusetts, I learned, I tried to actually obtain, I was just telling Leslie about this. I tried to obtain my Clio waiver, um, for the tear lab and for inflammatory. 
And I was told uh, that we can't actually get that in the state of Massachusetts. So I think this is the only state where you are not able to get your CLIA. They're not giving out CLIA waivers to um, ODs. You have to be an MD or affiliated with a hospital, of which I am neither. So <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> We're going to work on that on that little piece there. <laughs> but this is where the this is where the rep is really helpful because they sort of guided me on this whole thing here. But yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. It definitely pushes you to, um, explore the more, um, politically affiliated parts of our profession, right? It's <laughs> frustrating absolutely. To, it's frustrating when you want to do something and you're limited like that. Yes, so totally. that is unfortunate because for the yeah. rest of the world, the point of care testing when you're doing dry <laughs> eye is very helpful. So I feel bad for you, Jessica. I know. Me too. That's okay. That's right. You're, we're going to educate everyone else on point of care testing. So let's That's actually good, maybe good go to know into for that. The day, good to know for when the day comes that you're going to be using I'm, it too. I'm prepared. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So easy tests to run. And um, the best advice I have is just get your techs and your staff um, trained on how to do the test because it frees you up a lot. Um, actually, I was just doing a meeting and I was going to have to demonstrate how to do tear osmolarity and I thought, oh, I probably should learn myself. <laughs> but it was very quick to learn <laughs> um, because my techs have done it you know, since I've been using it for the past uh, five to six years. So that test alone is looking at the tear volume or the uh, the water to solute concentration in the tears. It's an easy test to obtain. Um, it's done through kind of the lateral canthus area, um, and it's a one eye, you know, one test per eye, and the, it's read within a few seconds. So that number on your scale really goes from somewhere in the 280s, probably all the way up to close to 400 uh, milliosmoles. And what you're looking for is a number that's around 300 with the upper limit being 308. So that's the one thing that you want to know is what your norms are. And so 300 to 308 is what you're thinking is normal osmolarity. And then the other thing you want to look at is any in, inter-eye difference that's bigger than 7 milliosmoles. So when you see that inter-eye difference, it starts to tip you off to thinking about things like tear film instability, maybe more of an, an evaporative dry eye. I've definitely you know, want to make sure I'm checking the meibomian glands if I see a big spread in the patient's eyes. Okay. Do you do this um, testing or you have your techs do this testing? So this is like a, a patient that's coming for a dry eye eval. This is their follow-ups. Is this when you're doing this? Um, they do it like before you ever see the patient. So you have the result already ready. Is that yeah, how you do it? So that, yes. And that's a good, that is a good question because your sequence of dry eye testing is so very important. You can actually create a dry eye, you know, say that you're bringing someone in and you're going to do non-contact tonometry and then you're going to do osmolarity. Well, you just, you just kind of yeah. desiccated the tear film. So we do have a very specific protocol when we're having a, a formal dry eye evaluation. So that's a patient that's scheduling for their baseline exam. We don't do anything with um, tonometry that day unless I'm checking it in the exam room after everything is done. So the first thing that they do is actually osmolarity. Um, and you also want to guide that patient to come into your office without putting any drops in their eyes mm -hmm. within two hours of the exam because a teardrop or a medication drop could also um, false, you know, give you a false positive um, or false negative result for that matter. So then also contact lens wearers, they're wearing glasses in for that visit. Yeah, so contact lens is kind of is a little bit tricky. Like You are supposed to do – you're, you're going to get your best result when the patient's not wearing a contact lens, but – I am a little bit more lenient in, with those patients. I actually like to see 
what that looks like when their contact lens is in place. So I, I do it with the contact lens in place. A lot of times oh, just my, you know, my own self, if, if they're coming in for maybe a follow-up or something, if it's a new evaluation, I probably would have them come in with glasses. But sometimes you want to see what's happening when they're wearing the lens, right? Is the lens adding to some kind of tear film instability that um, you can target the lens also while you're treating the dry eye? Yeah. So then, okay, so let's talk about tear lab. Okay, so let's say that you're getting a, a normal tear lab reading. So a normal osmolarity, let's say it's in the 280 range and the inter-eye asymmetry is, there. there isn't one really. You are then, then what are you thinking? Like, okay, this patient is complaining of what seems like dry eye, but what their tear osmolarity is normal. So then how does that change what steps you're taking? Um, so that helps me in understanding that they're able, a lot of times how I'll even address that to the patient is that say they are evaporative. A lot of times I'm thinking that that patient might still be an evaporative dry eye. So more of an oil deficient versus aqueous deficient. So my next step would always be inflammadry. And then my next step would be vital dye testing. And then my next step would be my, my Bohmian gland evaluation with expression. But that's usually where I find that a lot of the patients who have a lot of symptoms with normal osmolarity could be mybomian gland dysfunction. Mm. Um, so it kind of, you know, getting into the other point of care testing, it, what would matter to me then if that's normal is it, are they positive or negative on inflammatory? That would be my next kind of question before I even take a look at that patient. Um, the other thing to think about with these tests are sometimes they help you identify the patient that thinks they have dry eye or that you thought had dry eye, but they don't. And they have those masquerading syndromes, which could be something like map dot dystrophy, recurrent erosion, maybe even like a nocturnal lid seal type problem that you may not have been picking up on. So I was thinking that tear lab was helpful or you would get an abnormal reading on tear lab if you had a, not just an aqueous, but also a lipid deficiency too. Is that not, do you not find no, you, that as you much? Will. You, you will, you will for okay. sure. Mm -hmm. um, it just sometimes helps me know like how long has that cycle of inflammation been spinning? Um, so if they're early in the disease and they have meibomian gland dysfunction, they might actually still be normal in osmolarity but they could have still poor function because their they, their body can regulate better and keep the homeostasis of the tear film. So I, it doesn't rule out my, it, it's definitely inclusive of both diseases. It doesn't tell me anything about aqueous or um, truly aqueous or truly uh, evaporative, I would say. Okay. The other, the other finding that I find useful is the patients that are on lots and lots of medications you know, sometimes they're in the, you know, they're in the severe state of, of an aqueous deficiency dry eye when they, I might see numbers up in the 380s or something like that. The other, you know, the other thing that you had mentioned earlier was how do you do that? Do you do it every time? And yeah, I do it. I do osmolarity every time because it's sort of like an eye pressure to your glaucoma patient. You want to see what is changing different times of day. Are the readings different? different times of year, are the readings different? You can learn a lot about the environmental stress and challenges that your patient's dealing with. But that's also been a lot of the negative feedback I hear from our colleagues. You know, well, that number is different every time I look at it and the variability is, you know, makes that test not reliable. But would you ever say that about intraocular pressure, <laughs> right? No, right. you wouldn't. And you learn from that. If you see a big spread in your IOP, you know, six or 10 points, you're actually going to start thinking like, oh, this person might be more at risk for disease. You're going to look at them more. Same is true when I see that if I'm in the 290s one day and then I'm 330 the next day, I think what's changed? 
Is it winter? Is it low humidity? Did they have their heat on? You know, I try to figure out what's the environmental stimulus that might be causing more of that fluctuation. Okay. So if you you use this, so you're doing it every time you've got your number. Do you, I mean, is this like a gauge for the patient too? Like is the patient sort of like, oh, I'm 330 today versus I'm 290. Are they into this or no? Or is this mostly just for you? Like do you involve they, them? They do. I mean, I do involve them. Um, I, I know that the way that the company is structured when they train you, they really want you to kind of write it down and, and tell the patient and show them on this scale. I usually just say like, you know, hey, things are looking better. Things are getting, you know, worse. But I mean, should we give them the number? Probably. Same as my patients that don't know their A1C and they just say their doctors say they're okay. You know, it's nice to be in control of your own health. It's also interesting though, because sometimes as I start start therapies, I might see hyper. So you you have to just you know, if they were normal osmolarity and then I put them on a medication, sometimes they might actually go hyper. It doesn't mean the medication's not working. It just means maybe there's, again, like an environmental thing. Maybe it's just your body's way of re-regulating the tears as you're in the healing process. So it, there's a lot of nuances to it. So empowering them is good, but you also don't want to make them feel defeated if the number is too variable. Yeah. So there's just kind of a little bit of a fine line in educating the patients. But so I do tell them, um, or when it does look like it's gotten worse, I'll say, what's different? You know, a lot of times they'll say, you know, that they've been working longer hours or again, the environment that they're working in is dry. We, we sometimes look at work in home environments for humidity levels to see where we can help that. So let's say that you have, what about like this, the range of the, on the spectrum? So let's say that you have normal versus like a really high, almost 400 osmolarity reading. Are well, you thinking? Yeah. Oh, go ahead. For, I mean, the highest I've probably seen is in the 380s personally, but um, if you're, so, so, but if you're getting something higher, like, are you thinking, okay, it's, re, this is, this is really high, this is advanced. So I'm going to be thinking, I'm going to do this for treatment or look at this or, you know what I mean? Like, does that gauge like where your eye is kind of going? It does, but I always am pairing it um, usually with that next thing, which is MMP9 testing. So yeah. um, looking at that protein specifically in the tears, we know that that's linked to inflammation. It can be positive or negative and there can still be inflammation. So it's not a end all be all with, you know, inflammatory testing, but it's super helpful. So if I have a patient that is hyperosmolar and they have a positive inflammatory, that's like an easy patient to treat, right? You, you, you know, dry eye is inflammatory. Now you can see it. And you also can see that it's taking a toll on the homeostasis of the tears and your hyperosmolar, which is fueling the inflammation cycle. So those patients are your easiest ones to put on a therapeutic, right? Whether it's um, short-term with this uh, corticosteroid, but you definitely want to be thinking long-term with things like lafitograst and cyclosporins. That's where those fit great. And you watch your numbers to make sure that you're making a dent in the way that they look, right? You want to bring them down with time. But say that you have hyperosmolarity, normal inflammatory. I'm still going to treat that patient the same way because sometimes there is a miss. You know, the inflammatory might not be picking up the MMP9. Sometimes it just might not yet be to that level. So anytime it's hyperosmolarity, I'm definitely treating with a therapeutic. The trickier part is when I have normal osmolarity and normal inflammatory. You mm -hmm. know, so normal osmolarity, normal inflammatory, I could still have a rapid tear breakup time. I could still have my bomian gland def deficiencies and I could be dealing with something totally 
unrelated, like we were talking about with mapped out dystrophies. The other scenario would be normal osmolarity, positive inflammatory, and again, with the therapeutics that we have, you know, so really when you're managing dry eye, we try to make it so difficult, but it really doesn't mm-hmm. have to be. Right. You know, the majority of the time, that patient needs a therapeutic. So just treating them with something that's anti-inflammatory. And again, corticosteroids are great for your short-term or maybe your flare-ups, your patients that are flaring up because now it's estimated that that happens maybe six times out of their year. Um, But you need something that's going to blanket inflammation and help keep them maintaining homeostasis. And that's where we've been fortunate to have, you know, a few medications to treat. So what is your uh, treatment of choice? Like what's your corticosteroid of choice when you're doing just a short-term for your dry eye people? Are you doing Lodamax? I use I use a lot of Lodamax. I've been using more um, Flarex. Um, in on in all honesty, it's really what is going to be affordable for the patient. It's really like I'm when it comes to the corticosteroids, I'm doing more jumping through the hoops of their insurance plans than anything else. What I've seen that I don't like, and I personally don't do um, because of these insurance challenges, I've seen a lot of our colleagues go right to like full strength Predforte. Um, or prednisone acetate 1% versus the generic. And I, I just still haven't been too comfortable with that because of the risk for, you know, IOP spikes and, and such. But when you look at the pricing, it's pretty shocking the difference between that yeah. and, and sometimes what you would consider like the fluoromethylone family. But the companies have been working hard, at least for our commercial patients, most of them, to try to bring down the cost. And then some of them also are translating into the Medicare patients. So so that's kind of my my go-to there. But honestly, with things like the Lafitograss family, I, in all honesty, have gotten away from a lot of steroids. And I, I do reserve them for this idea of the flare. So, you know, some companies are looking actually to get indications for dry eye flares, and they have research that shows these six times a year that your patient flares up. And whenever I'm treating a patient, I'd, I'd send them home with that information. You know, if you're getting worse and you're worse for a couple of days, it's worth a phone call because there's something that we can do instead of just feeling bad and not having an answer. Um, so that's really where I've kind of reserved them. With things like lafitograss, I can get symptom control so much quicker um, and I can get to even corneal improvement so much quicker than past, you know, in the past. So I feel like I've kind of given up on um, preloading with, with steroids a lot. Sometimes if I'm going to be doing in-office procedures with you know, uh, a meibomian gland clearing treatment, that's still where I might use them, you know, blepharitis patients, that kind of thing, pre-surgery maybe, but. Yeah. Where do, um, well, maybe we should talk about inflammatory too. So inflammatory is, you know, measuring the level of MMP9, which is the inflammatory uh, biomarker in the tears. This, when you get this reading for the inflammatory, it's sort of like a, you know, line on this chart, on this like little, pregnancy-like looking test. Yeah, our our techs like to say, you're having baby eyeballs. (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) But it is the pregnancy test of your tears. We kind of make that joke. That's exactly what it looks like. But if if you, when you get these readings, you know, there's like faint lines and there's sort of a darker line, like you're like a little pregnant or a lot pregnant or whatever. Like if you, is that that's not, what's your repeatability on that for a patient? Like, are you repeating that on the follow-ups too, like you are with Tear Lab, or you mostly am, using but, it as your um, initial. 
No, I use it initially and it, and it is a little bit tricky and I would definitely lean on the reps there like you had said earlier just to kind of give you a little guidance on your insurance billing before you are just doing it every time because um, sometimes I think that if it's not positive the first time, some of the payers might not be paying for that second time. Um, definitely if it's positive one time, you need to repeat it to see if it's positive a second time. Um, I know in our area, sometimes some of our medical assistance plans aren't paying which doesn't always mean that we're not doing it. We just prepare the patient that you might have this X amount of dollars out of pocket. But so that's looking for that matrix metallo metalloproteinase 9. That's that protein. And it's sensitive when it's about 40 um, nanograms per milliliter. So that's where you're going to get that faint pink, like, you know, barely visible line. And then as it's it, also the timeline that it comes out, like, so I, if I'm getting a test within a couple minutes of a, of a, collection, then I know that that's going to be a strong positive. In my chart, I document it that way. Either I'll say strong positive, weak positive. That's usually how I do. I've seen some people do like two pluses, one plus. There's definitely um, some work done that showed that there is this quantification of the MMP9 testing just from the different colors of the pink line mm -hmm. <laughs> that you yeah. know, you're seeing. So I usually just go strong positive, weak positive. And then when I see them back and retest, I see if that's any, you know, where am I on that? It did a strong go weak. Did it completely go away? That's important. But it's been able to identify some, some of those other masquerade syndromes like mucus fishing syndrome. Mucus fish, fishing syndrome is a syndrome that I, you know, learned from a cornea specialist years ago. And I thought, I've never heard that in school. You know, that was not something that was top of mind for me years ago. Uh, but I have a patient in particular that has been through, he's on a topical, he's been through gl gland treatments. And he will light up with lysamine and his inflammatory was positive, right? And I asked him, you know, are you always rubbing that eye? And show me what that looks like. And and it was amazing what he's doing as far as local trauma um, okay. every day. And so, you know, for him, just learning a little bit about him, I was able to teach him to stop touching his eye and stop rubbing his eye. And um, that made a big difference then when we continued his treatment and saw him back. So sometimes if you're you know, if you're still positive after your adequate time of treatment, you might be questioning, well, is my treatment effective? But you might also need to ask the patient those questions. I actually oftentimes videotape how they rub their eyes. I ask them, are they eye rubbers? And then I, sh I say, show me how that looks. And it, it's frightening. I had one lady actually scratch with her fingernail her um, bulbar conjunctiva. I think I, I think I saw that video. Yeah, it was really <laughs> it impressive. Was yeah. Terrible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So if we're talking, so maybe um, I kind of don't want to bring up the cost um, factor of the point of care testing because bringing, now that I own a practice, like every decision I make um, is now like, all right, is this good? Is this a profitable decision? Is this a good decision? Is this going to help us in the long run? Like I, I, you know, obviously didn't think about that as much when I wasn't the owner. And I know point of care testing is, this is not going to generate a huge income for you. Um, and as you said in like the first episode, that's really not the point of the point of care testing. It's really like you're gathering all these different pieces to the puzzle. But if we, if you're thinking about entry into one of these two point of care testing, so inflammatory, I think is a, like a lower cost of entry into that, um, meaning you're just buying those, um, you know, the test strips versus you're buying the whole device with tier lab. Let's say that you just have inflammatory, that you're just starting with inflammatory. Are you, you know, you're getting either a positive or, you know, strong positive, weak positive, or 
nothing. Are you then saying, okay, let's say that I just have this point of care testing. I don't have tear lab yet. Um, what am I doing for my strong positives? Are you always starting these people on a corticosteroid? Are you just going, I guess it all will depend obviously on the rest of the case, but maybe run me through your thought process on like when you see just a, let's say you didn't have osmolarity and you're just doing a, you know, a tear, or a, a inflammatory. So if I have positive inflammatory, again, it's one piece of your exam. Right. So it would be like you're just treating um, glaucoma with the eye pressure, right? We're totally past that. We we need to know what the optic nerve looks like. We need to know what the visual field looks like. We want to see what the OCT looks like, um, all of those things. So if you have just that one piece, you need your exam. So let's say that you have positive inflammatory and you have you know, meibomian gland dysfunction with some staining on the cornea or even conjunctival tissue, definitely you're thinking of a long-term solution for that patient, right? You want to be doing the, again, the corticosteroids are great for improving symptoms fast, but really the medications that we have don't take that long in the big scheme of things if you're just coaching the patients. And then it comes down to costs. Can you pair two medicines and are you going to get them both through with a prior authorization? Do you have to do a step approach? All these things that maybe didn't have to think of before. So in the ideal world, I'm not thinking about insurance. I keep it simple for patients uh, and I would go straight to uh, lifidograss or cyclosporine, bypassing okay. a steroid. Got That's it. me, but I and and like I said, I know that that might, but I try to keep it simple. And then if if I need to add it back, I will. Um, but think about the adherence of glaucoma medications, right? Patients um, can't adhere to more than one, and that's once they, you know, more than one medication, rather, their adherence rates drop. And that's for a disease that they know the end result could be blindness. Yeah. Yes, dry eye feels bad. So we have that in our favor. At least there's this reminder to the patients that they got to be using something. But at the same time, like we really make their life complicated when we give them too many steps in a day. Plus you as the doctor, you're changing too many variables. So I'm a, I'm a big fan of, um, you know, a step approach. The other thing is on the, uh, from a cost perspective too, I know the reimbursements, um, that's something that I know you can work with the rep with. I talked with Quidel about reimbursements um, just for these testing, but you kind of brought up a good point whether or not the, you know, you're, they're going to get paid for um, doing that testing versus letting the patient know. But again, I think, um, as you had said before, it's really the value that you get out of the testing and not as much like we're trying to generate an income, but more of like a, like a, the equivalent of a pachymetry and an IOP and an OCT and a visual right. field and all those things. Right. That you're doing. wouldn't say like, I don't know if pachymetry is worth it to me, how much right. that machine right. costs. <laughs> And how much you're getting reimbursed, like you wouldn't think, hmm, I'm not sure that I, you're going to want that number because you know how valuable it is to the glaucoma patient. And that's really where we got to get things with point of care testing. They, it is a huge value. Look at new research, you know, put out by um, ASCRS. They're saying to figure out before a patient has surgery, cataract or refractive surgery, you need to do these things, osmolarity, inflammatory. If they are positive on either one, now you're moving to your next step, which is like a dry eye survey and your evaluation. And if they have visually significant dry eye, they are pausing surgery. Oh, they are. Okay. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, that's what we have to do. Um, that's what we have to do with yeah. our um, 
you know, we have to really embrace the research that's out there. There's not just like, you know, just like the oats gave us with pachymetry. I mean, imagine if you thought about that that way. Right. How much does a pachymeter cost? I don't know. I, <laughs> Do you, I don't, you probably I don't, don't know. know. It, it came I, with your practice. It yeah. came with my practice. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Good point. So I think optometry really needs to embrace it because we are kind of the gatekeeper for these patients. So that is the MD, right? ASCRS, that's now the MDs taking back over because their research showed that when patients were coming in for cataract evaluations from us, that as high as um, 70 to 80% of patients had dry eye and they didn't know it. And then of those patients, sometimes 50% of them would have central corneal staining and they weren't on a therapeutic. So that mm. really looks bad for us, right? Yeah, that looks bad yeah. for us. Yeah. So now they're kind of taking charge of it, saying these are what we need to do as the surgeons to ensure that our numbers are going to look good and our patient's going to have a good outcome. But it all goes back a step, if you ask me. It all goes back to the referring OD. So if you don't have that testing, then you know find a center that you can work with you know, in support a local um optometry optometrist in a dry eye center of excellence and really you know get them that pre-surgical evaluation so now for the to the point replay point of care testing is tear osmolarity and mmp9 through inflame and dry you need a clea waiver to do point of care testing in your clinic a good resource is cms.gov as well as representatives from both of the point-of-care testing companies, TierLab and Quidel. Typically, it takes about four to six weeks to obtain your waiver, and this can be renewed for two years per location at $150. It's best to implement staff training to increase your efficiency within your practice, and also understanding the test norms help to guide your treatments when examining these patients. <laughs>